0: You all are dismissed. Go forth, have fun, learn something new. Pray for us. And for the rest of us, we're going to be continuing a little study that we started a few weeks ago called Uncomfortable Truths. And as we have been uh, turning the pages on these chapters, we have talked about such things as spiritual dehydration, We've talked about spiritual constipation. We've talked about, um, what was last week? Oh, spiritual pomposity. Very important message. Today we're going to be looking at a message called spiritually tethered. And this is an uncomfortable truth that uh, I, I think is very important for us to struggle with today. So spiritually tethered. And uh, we're going to look at uh, several different verses. We're going to look at the Second Timothy chapter 3, Luke chapter 10, and we're just going to talk about uh, what this means and how, how I'm perceiving these things. Uh, let me back up a little bit and tell you this. Uh, Kathy Court gave, she didn't give it to me, she let me borrow a book by Charles Kraft that has been very instrumental in, and it has to do with the authority that Christ gives us to do his work for him in this world. And uh, I had been thinking about some of the principles of this book, but when I got the book and I read through the introduction in the first chapter, it just started clicking. And I thought, this guy has like a better mind than mine because he's been thinking about similar things, but he put it together in such a succinct way that it makes sense. And so that's where this concept of tethering is coming from. Now, I remember as a child playing tetherball, you, did you all ever play tetherball? It's a ball like a volleyball that's attached to a pole that has a a rope that attaches the two, and you smack the ball and it goes around the, the pole, you remember? The interesting thing about a tether ball, if you really think about it, a tether ball only has the ability to travel as far as that rope is that attaches it to the pole. So that is what makes the game plausible. It's also what makes the game miserable because of the limitations that that tether pole and that rope have upon that ball. Now, here's the thing, how I'm looking at this attaching to our message today. Spiritually, every single one of us are tethered to something. Something. What the book is trying to imply is, what Charles Craft is implying, is that there's basically two areas that we are tethered in our spiritual journey. The first one is scripturally. The second one is experience. Whatever you've been taught in your life, whatever you have learned from the scriptures, whatever you have experienced in your life, all play an important role at tethering you spiritually. Now, now, tethering in this light doesn't necessarily mean something awesome. It, it doesn't have a lot of positives to it. It doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, feel-goods attached to it. To be tethered spiritually is really to be seen more of a negative. If you think about it, if, if it's true that your, your spiritual development is contingent upon your experiences and how strictly you have been tethered, then you may live a whole life of, of very limited experiences. You may never really go anywhere. You may never really do anything. You may never really experience anything. Your faith may never really be stretched if you are tethered so tightly that there's no room for your experience to allow you to grow. Likewise, it is also possible that your understanding of Scripture The way you've read it, the way you perceive it, the things you've been taught and you've embraced as truth, it's possible that those things have tethered you so tightly that there's no room for the Holy Spirit to make you grow. And so we are tethered. We're spiritually tethered by our scripture understanding and also by our experience. I'm going to pull out some of these scriptures for us to contemplate and just to look at some of the principles. The first one in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the whole passage from verse 10 through 17 is very relevant, but I, for time purposes, I want to restrict to just 14 through 17. In 14, he says, but for you, first he's talking about himself and his own experience with scripture and his own development. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. You know that there's a difference there things that you've been taught, but if you're not convinced that that thing that you've been taught is truth, then you haven't embraced it for yourself. If it conflicts with your experience or the things you've been taught elsewhere, you may reject that teaching. But it's saying that you're, you're, you're listening to the things that you have learned and the things that you've been convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. So because you have respected certain teachers and you have embraced certain ideologies, that has been allowed to to basically transform you into who you are. But now your understanding of Scripture is basically contingent upon that one or two people. And if they're tethered scripturally, then likewise you will be tethered scripturally. He goes on to say in verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. This is also important. There's a bunch of assumptions here. There's an assumption that from infancy you have been taught the Holy Scriptures, that you've been raised in a Christian environment, that you've been taught the various principles of Scripture. But for most of us, for a lot of us, we didn't get much of that growing up. In fact, some of us didn't get any of it growing up. Luckily, I was blessed with a mom who made sure I went to church every time the doors opened. I didn't say that, thankfully, 20 years ago. But I say it thankfully now. But listen to what he says here. These scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. In the Greek word, that actually uses the word dunamis. Uh, which is the root word, which means power. And it says that these holy scriptures, which have the power to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. These scriptures are highly relevant to every single human being in this world because they have the power to open your eyes and to open your heart to receive Jesus Christ himself. These scriptures have that ability I have a picture. I wish I could have brought it. It's on my Facebook. You can go look at it later. But it's a picture of, of a sheet of the, word, of the Bible, and it says uh, it has a girl standing in front of it, and the scriptures are wrapping its arms around her. And the quote underneath says, only the Bible has this ability to just wrap its arms around you and comfort you and squeeze you and, and bring you to the point of salvation. Scriptures are so important, but here's the thing it says in verse 16. I want to focus on one word, three letters. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. Most of us have been taught in this world to focus on this verse, this verse, this verse. Don't worry about this one. That one has nothing to do with us. Uh, don't worry about this one. This pertains to the Jews. Don't worry about this Old Testament because this is about Judaism Uh, 2000 years ago. So just ignore that focus on just the four gospels. That's all you need to know No, that's not what the bible says It says that all scripture is useful. All scripture is beneficial. All scripture breathes life into all scripture has the ability To wrap its arms around you and draw you in to the point of salvation. Scripture does that not pastors Scripture does that not teachers With the help of the Holy Spirit, you read this book and you're like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Well, read it again. Okay, well, maybe that sentence makes sense. Read it again. Okay, now I understand the whole chapter because the Holy Spirit has been teaching you and guiding you. And then you use teachers and preachers to kind of help guide you to make sure you're on the right track. That's our job as elders is to help you to get on the right track. You know, a phrase that's been sticking out in my head, and I heard this in a song this weekend, is it goes to, along the lines of using shame and guilt to bring people to church. And, and that is such an insult, but it's also a conviction that sometimes it seems like we're using shame and guilt to make you more applicable in the church or more uh, helpful in the church. Whenever we need people to serve on committees, don't we to some degree use shame and guilt? Well, I guess I'll have to do that committee also. Nobody else wants to do it, right? So I guess I'll end up doing that, and next week I'm going to start playing piano. Don't we do that kind of stuff? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is useful for these things. And just as a side note, uh, because when I was a kid, I never understood the difference between rebuking and correcting. Correcting is when you pull somebody aside and you say, oh, by the way, the thing you said earlier in Sunday school, it's not completely true. It was actually Saul who was converted to Paul, not John turned into Peter, you know, something like that. That would be correcting. Rebuking is when somebody says something really off the wall, like, like uh, when Peter says, no, I would die for you, and he rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. Rebuking is a sharp uh, criticism and, and a verbal, almost an attack. It's, it's a wall saying, no, this is not tolerable. You're not going to act this way. Get behind me. You're not going to let this teaching be, be made known in this place. And then again, it's so that the man of God may be perfectly or thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the point of this is many of us are scripturally tethered because we haven't adequately spent time studying the Word. We really just don't know our Bible well enough. And if you really don't know your Bible, It's not going to serve you very well in this world for the purposes of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. We'll come back to that in a minute. The second element is tethered by experience. This comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. I'm not going to look at all of it because of time, but we are going to look at some. In verse 17, it says the 72 returned. These are 72 people that Jesus appointed in verse 1. And he sent them out two by two into the world. And he he told them, this is how you're to go about. But 72 people, followers of his, that he sent out to do his work. And in verse 17, when they returned with joy, they said to him, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, I want to stop there just for a minute. Jesus in chapter 10 has given them authority to do this. He has commissioned them. He has sent them in his name and in his purposes. He has sent them to do this particular task. And when these 72 went out and did what he told them, they came back excited and filled with joy because they were shocked at what happened. Even the demons submit to us in your name. My, my question is this. If they had never gone when they were sent, would they have had the same experience? If they had not gone to where the demons hid, would they have ever experienced that teaching on their own? Of course not. So not only do we need to be a people that become cognizant of how closely tethered we are by Scripture, scripture, but we also need to understand how closely tethered we are by our own experiences. Until you've ever gone to a third world country and done mission work and seen the faces of crying babies that have the little uh, uh, pot belly because they're so starved to death, until you've held somebody dying in your arms, you don't know what that stuff's like. You don't know what it's like to be in the presence of a dying person and just pray with them and see a peace come over them. You don't know what it's like to see them when they die and they pass from this life into the next, to see them with their hands stretched out thinking like like they're embracing somebody, coming to get them. Until you've seen that, you haven't experienced anything. Well, how do we have those experiences? You get them by going. Christ says, I send you to that hospital room to visit so-and-so. I send you to that prison to visit that person. I send you to the school where the people don't know you. I send you there and I expect you to go. Now, you're not going to be successful every time, but God didn't call us to be successful. He called us to be faithful. And so if we would just go, we might see some amazing things. We might experience some crazy stuff, and we might come back with joy in our hearts, and we might say, even the demons submit in your name. What's that all about? He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in verse 19, Jesus said, I have given you authority. I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all of the power of the enemy. There is a very deliberate enemy in this world. We live on his front lawn because he is the prince of this world. And so we can assume, and Ephesians 6 backs it up, that we are in a spiritual battle against principalities and and powers not of this world. And that is what we're up against. And so we come against it knowing this from Scripture that we have the authority to overcome all of the power that the enemy can put up against us. There's nothing he can do that we cannot stand up against. He wants to afflict your body with physical pain? Rebuke it. He wants to attack your children and and give them depression or anxiety? Rebuke it. Pray over them. Take authority over them. He's given you the power over these principalities but then there's always somebody who will say oh well you're just assuming that that's spiritual depression and anxiety may not be spiritual then maybe the scriptures are maybe you're tethered a little bit too tightly with the scriptures because if you read the same book i'm reading anxiety and depression are part of the game But it's easier. It's easier just to say, no, it's not scriptural. I need to go get a medication from my doctor. Now, you might need both. But the fact is, we're awful tightly wung scripturally. Did I say that right? Anyway, sometimes that happens to me. He goes on to say this later. No one knows the Son... No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Himself. This is scriptural and experience. All of this is for the purpose of Him... Teaching you what he wants you to do and sending you out to practice it to see what happens so that you can come back and give reports and we can fine tune what your experience has revealed and then we can send you back out. Now, those were the two bases. I want to get into a couple other passages that are going to help with this. In John 8, verses 31 through 41, John 8, 31 through 41 goodness, where's John 8? Right before John 9, just where it was last time. So in John 8, 31 through 41, again, not going to look at all of this, but this is interesting stuff. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, remember, these are Jews who had believed in him. If you hold on to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But they answered him because they were confused and didn't understand what he was saying. We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Their understanding of scriptures has limited their being able to enjoy life and to the fullest, and they're still in bondage. They're still, they're still tied up and tethered too tightly. And so Jesus has to teach them. He tells them in verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abram's descendants, but yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. You have no room for my teaching. I'm telling you that what I have seen in the father's presence and you do not, or you Do what you have heard from your Father. So there is a huge disconnect. There's a disconnect because they're following traditional teachings and traditional understanding of Scripture that they have been taught for years and years and years. But the problem is is that when Jesus came onto the scene and said, I am the Messiah sent by God to redeem a fallen world, they said, you're not our Messiah. They've been taught incorrectly. They've embraced the lies. They've embraced the the, the fallacies. And and it's because they didn't have an understanding of Scripture in their own right. They had no ability to challenge the teaching they had been receiving for years and years and years. A teaching that was skewed by Pharisaic, Sadducees, and Sanhedrin uh, principles because they wanted to protect what they had in common. And they loved the power and the control of the Jewish church. It wasn't about bringing people to faith. It was about protecting the status quo for the church leaders. So Jesus had to reconstruct their teaching. And he says in 30, I'm telling you what I have seen in the father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father. And then they go on to say, or he goes on to say, do the things Abraham did as it is. You are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. Then he goes into the teaching about the devil. So, so here, here's the principle here. We are tethered by scripture. We're tethered by experience. And because of the two, we can't really get out there in the, in the shadows and really do ministry the way God intended us to do it because we limit ourselves with what we know about scripture and what we've experienced. My job is... All of us elders, our job is to get you out into the world and teach you how to get your hands dirty so that when you're presented with these different outside influences, you'll be able to come back to the scripture and say, wow, this is what I learned. This is what I experienced. And we can say, good job. Now, now this is what ministry is all about. Let us help you. Let's send you somewhere else now. Let's send you to some other mission field. Let's send you on some other project or some other calling. Getting off track, got one more. Matthew twenty-eight, sixteen through twenty. Many of you will know this by the Great Commission. He says in Matthew 28, verse 16 Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. How could anybody doubt when Jesus died on the cross, raised from the dead, and now here he is standing among you? How could anyone doubt? But if you read John chapter 21, Timothy, his, uh, Thomas, his own uh, disciple, doubted him because he didn't have the same experience that John and Peter did with him. Until I see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands, I will not believe, he said. So Jesus came and said, well, Now that I'm here, why don't you do that? But you see how experience can limit you to the point of doubt. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because he had conquered death, he had conquered hell. uh, Satan had to give the keys and the authority back to him. And then in 19, he says, With this authority, therefore, go and make disciples. He is commissioning the reader, and he is saying, I'm giving you this authority that now is in my possession. I give it to all of you, and I send you out into this world to make a difference. Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obedience. Everything I have commanded you, you are to command them. But here's the problem. There's always someone, usually a lot of people, that will say, that's the pastor's job. It's the pastor's job to go into the world and to make disciples and to baptize people. But I, I mean, I studied the Greek for three years, and I never saw that in that verse. Not once have I ever read it, and it said, go you therefore elders. Elders. Or go you, therefore, deacons. Or go you Sunday school teachers. Or go you teenagers. You see, this is implicit, but it should be explicit for every reader. Every one of us are called and commissioned to go and to make disciples. Every single one of us. Now, here's, here's how you can measure the effectiveness of any church. If only one or two people are bringing people to faith, the church is going to struggle. If you think about uh, retention rates, you think about uh, death rates and, and other types of, of factors that lead to church membership, if a church only takes in three members a year, it will continue to decrease over, over a period of time. And depending on how many people you start with, it will, you can measure exactly how long it's going to take you to die. The attrition rate is the same in every church, but some churches are a little bit stronger, so it's going to take a little bit longer. But if you think about it, you're going to lose three people a year and you average 60, you're going to lose in 20 years, you're dead. If you have 100 people, it's going to take you 33.3 years, right? And you're going to die. And then in some cases, you might lose more people than that. So if we know we're going to lose three people a year, then we have to go out and make sure that we're bringing in at least four people a year to salvation, not stealing sheep from other churches, but winning people into the kingdom of Jesus Christ four people a year, and then we can sustain ourselves. And and if we only have two people in the church doing that, that means that each person only has to bring in two people a year. But think about this. What if we had 20 people in the church doing this, and they all bring in two people every year? This is not about maintaining the name of Countryside Christian Church. This is about maintaining the kingdom of God and expanding the gates of heaven to encapsulate this entire planet. All of us are called to go into the world and to make disciples. And here's the other thing that's a little side note you don't have to pay extra for. Where are we supposed to go, right? Because I've been in churches that say, you know what, we do way too much work in foreign missions. We give way too much money to missionaries in other countries that we're never gonna go to. Why do we waste our time and money? Well, the reason we waste our time and money is because the Bible says right here, we must go to all nations and we're not going to talk back to our heavenly father and say oh but God I really don't think the Haitians need to hear about Jesus I'm sure somebody's already told them go you therefore into all nations baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit teach them everything to obey that I have commanded you and I will be with you always even to the end of time so now do you understand how significant it is for us to not be too tightly tethered to our foundation. If we don't have enough scripture to match up with our ministry, then we need to expand our scripture base. If we don't have enough experience to to make sense of all of the scripture that we know or the things that we've been taught, then we're going to just basically squander it. We're going to miss a lot of opportunities. So what I want to challenge you today is is that somehow, some way, you learn to sever that rope. It's going to change the way you play the game forever, but you're going to have to sever the rope because we have a dying world all around us that's screaming and crying for help and nobody's going. Nobody's interested. Nobody wants to help. We're so busy playing games and, and, and dating and getting jobs and playing on the river and playing golf we just don't have time for all this nonsense, right? Now, here's a quick analogy to put this all together. Let's say you're walking down the street. You and your wife are on, a, on an evening walk along the, the river like Paige and I did the other night. And let's say you come up to a house that's on fire and you see children up in the window and they're screaming, they can't get out, they're trapped by the fire. And you just stand there and you're like, oh, give me the camera. Let's take, let's take some pictures of that. And, and you're like... What, what do you want me to do? I don't have a ladder. And if they're up there screaming and crying for help and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm not a fireman. I'm not a fireman. You're going to have to call somebody else. You might as well look at those children in the window and say, you know what? You can just go ahead and go to hell because I don't care. I'm too busy. I don't care. That's not my job. I'm not going to get myself burned. I'm not going to hurt myself. You all just go ahead and go. Because that's not my responsibility. If we don't go into the world sharing Jesus with those who do not know him, that's the same attitude that we possess. I don't care. Syrian refugees, I don't care what happens to them. I don't care. People in Africa that are being brutalized or hands being cut off, I don't care. That's not my responsibility. People sold into sex uh, trafficking, that's not my business. You know, somebody else will help them. So why don't we just under our breath just collectively say, it's okay, they can just go to hell. Is that what we're all about? This is a major problem, a major problem. We have kids that come into our home on a regular basis. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about just us, you guys do. You have people that come into your house on a regular basis that do not know the Lord. They think they do, but they're so tethered scripturally that they've got it wrong. And we do nothing about it. We're like, well, but they're good people. They're good people. Well, that doesn't jive with scripture either. We, we just, we're, we're, we're all a mess, you know what? And, and I'm the ringleader of this mess because I'm no better than you are. The, the problem is, is that I hear the cries for help, obviously more than you do, and it keeps me awake at night. And I, I, can't, I can't breathe sometimes because I hear it and I see it, and, and I don't know what I can do to fix it. Um, so all I can do is do my best to pray that God will raise up a field of harvesters because He's the Lord of the harvest. He knows what the needs are. He will raise up people. I don't know who they are. Every time I think, okay, this is one that I know the Lord is raising up, then I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You're not the one. It um, happens all the time. Anyway, let's pray. We need help. Gracious Father, I pray, as, I guess, as the ringleader. I pray if on behalf of all of the elders and deacons that you'll forgive us of the areas that we've dropped the ball. I pray that you'll forgive all of us at times when we have acted like we really don't care. I pray that you'll somehow change our heart and convict us so that we'll be different. I pray that the Holy Spirit will keep working on us and helping us to be mindful of those cries for help and those needs around us. I pray that you'll do whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it takes to to get us to the place where we care about other people more than we care about ourselves. Father, please have mercy on us, and please show us a better way. Please forgive us, wash away these sins, give us a clear conscience and a clear mandate to go into the world making a difference. For your purposes, for your kingdom, we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and...